Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, and today we will be taking a look at Saturday night's fight between Isaac Dog Dogbay and Joette Gonzalez. Very entertaining fight. I'll break down the fight and how I had it scored. A lot of controversy as to what people think about the scoring of that fight. I'll break it down. Then we will do what has become a ongoing segment on the podcast, and that is now a weekly Q&A answer, uh, session. Um, I will be answering questions from the hashtag on Twitter, AskRobSilver. I have several questions this week that I will get to. And then the final segment will be, once again, for those who are who have been listening and for new listeners, I do a series of articles on the fightgamemedia.com website entitled the 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years on the website just released is my number 12 greatest fighter last 45 years, the real deal Evander Holyfield. Well, on today's episode, I will be reading my 30th greatest fighter, of the last 45 years, and that is the greatest Korean fighter of all time, Jung Koo Chang. Before I get to Saturday night's main event that was on ESPN Plus between Isaac Dogbe and Joette Gonzalez, I want to quickly plug the YouTube channel for Fight Game Media. Go to YouTube, subscribe to the Fight Game Media page on YouTube, and you will see excerpts of my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years. There'll be, it'll be just that segment of the podcast put up on there. But not only that, you get breaking news. Like Vince McMahon recently retired. And um, the my colleagues at Fight Game Media have been putting up YouTube videos about where they think the WWE will go after a man who's been part of the organization for 50 years, one of the single biggest icons in professional wrestling history is gone. Where does the WWE go from there? And also you have uh, other combat sports uh, uh, content on the YouTube channel, MMA with a UFC, Bellator, and of course a lot of AEW talk on that YouTube page. And also, one last thing, there's a link in the description of the podcast. I do a monthly Patreon podcast on the Fight Game Media Patreon on feed for $5 a month. You can hear my greatest upsets in boxing history. The last one is... Thomas Hearns third round knockout at the hands of Iran Barkley um, next week I will record that will be released first week of August the night that Junior Jones knocked out Marco Antonio Barrera also late September late August early September I will be starting a new series on Patreon covering the Hulu docudrama 
on Mike Tyson. And I believe Travante Rose is starring as Mike Tyson. They'll be showing two episodes a week, I believe, for five weeks straight, ten episodes. So uh, I believe I'll be joined by the CEO of the Fight Game Media uh, website, podcast network, and Patreon um, feed. And that is... He calls me the great Robert Silver. Well, he is the great Gary Gonzalez, the Ron Darling of podcasting, the Ron Darling of wrestling analysis. You hear him on the Wrestling Observer with Dave Meltzer on radio. He is Dave's best partner. I always call Dave Meltzer and and um, I was about to call Garrett Ron and Gary Gonzalez, the Gary Cohn and Ron Darling of wrestling announcing wrestling analysis for those of you who don't know gary Cohn and ron darling watch a mets uh broadcast on sports new york all right if you have a baseball package check out the mets uh announcing team gary Cohn and ron darling in my opinion are the best color commentator and broadcaster i've seen since the legendary John Miller and Joe Morgan used to do ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. All right, on to the fight between Joe Gonzalez and Isaac Dogbay. This was the perfect fight for both fighters because both fighters, I'm not going to lie, are gatekeepers at 126 pounds. These are guys that are not good enough to beat the best featherweights in the world. But they're good enough to make sure that if you beat them, you have earned a shot at the best featherweights in the world. And when you look at the best featherweights in the world, we're talking Emmanuel Navarrete. We're talking Ray Vargas. We're talking Lee Wood. And I don't really, Leo Santa Cruz, Leo Santa Cruz passed his prime. I, I don't consider Leo Santa Cruz, Leo Santa Cruz an elite. Featherweight. Matter of fact, either of these guys have a legit shot at beating Leo Santa Cruz, but the other guys be a tough. I don't see these guys beat either of these guys beating a Wood, a Navarrete, or a Vargas. Matter of fact, Navarrete beat the hell out of Dog Dog Bay twice, so you could you could toss that out the out the window. And Navarrete beat uh Gonzalez, so uh, you could forget that. Anyway, this is a fight of two gatekeepers. And it was a good, good fight. Excellent fight. First three rounds, Dog Bay dominated by going to the body. He was inside. Um, he's much shorter than Gonzalez. So it was key for him to get inside and, and avoid Gonzalez's length. Gonzalez had a six-inch six reach advantage. Dog Bay batted that body through nice combinations, was in and out, easily won the first three rounds. Then in the fourth round, Dog Bay let his hands down while he was inside and got caught with a crisp right-hand cross counter from Gonzalez, and he was seriously hurt, and Gonzalez easily took round four as he batted Dog Bay for the rest of round four. Round five, very good round, could have gone either way. I gave the edge to Dog Bay because I thought he out-hustled Gonzalez because I thought Gonzalez took his foot off the pedal after having Dog Bay severely hurt in the third round, in, in, in the fourth round, in the fifth round. He allowed Dog Bay to out-hustle him. Round six, seven, and eight, in my opinion, was all 
Joet Gonzalez. He was landing combinations. He was he was taking it to Dog Bay, and Dog Bay wasn't as active as he was in the first five rounds. So after eight rounds, I had to fight dead even. Round nine and ten were the keys to why Dog Bay won this fight. Round nine, I thought Dog Bay pulled out that round by out, out hustling Gonzalez as both men were inside firing away, throwing punches and punches. And in round 10, I thought the exact opposite. I thought Gonzalez out-hustled Dog Bay in a very entertaining 10th and final round as both fighters knew the fight was on the line. So after 10 rounds, I had to fight 95-95, five rounds apiece, dead even. Dog Bay won by split decision, and you have a lot of people complaining, especially the Gonzalez camp, that he, Gonzalez was robbed. Gonzalez was not robbed. That fight could have gone either way. That's never a robbery, ladies and gentlemen. No. That fight could have gone either way. I wouldn't have bitched and moaned. If either were a fight, I had to fight a draw. Watch the fight again. Nobody dominated that fight. That fight had its ebbs and flows. It went back and forth. And the last two rounds were very hard to judge. You could have made a case for either fighter to win, win 9 and 10. Round five could have gone either way. Round, the first three rounds and round six through eight were clear. First three rounds were clear, clearly dog base. Round six through eight were clearly Gonzalez's. Round five, nine, and ten, if you would have given one fighter those three rounds, he wins the fight. If you give the other fighter all three rounds, he wins the fight. If you get one fighter two of those three rounds, it's a flip of the coin with those three rounds. So, no, this fight was not a robbery. Would like to see a rematch because, to be honest with you, these guys, they're never going to be world champions. Gonzalez is already 0 for 2. Dog Bay was a world champion at 122. He's too small for 126. Um, and especially against a guy like Vargas who's much taller and will hit him at, at, at will. Uh, no. It's, uh, it's a wrap. Uh, it's a wrap for these guys as far as being champions, but they are gatekeepers. And they will continue to be live underdogs against the up-and-coming young fighters at 126 pounds. In order for you to be a serious threat at 126 pounds, you got to beat either Dog Bay or Joette Gonzalez. Now on to the question and answer segment of the program. Um, I first, my uh, my first question is from Julius Streeter, and it's a non-boxing question, but I like this question because the Baseball Hall of Fame happened yesterday and David Ortiz was inducted on the first ballot. And uh, Julius, and by the way, um, Julius, North Carolina brother, check out his YouTube page, Street Sports. Now, Julius asks, I'm confused. David Ortiz hit 50 home, 58 home runs first six seasons in Minnesota and finished with 541 going in the Hall of Fame with positive test. Why is positive steroid test? Why is Bonds not there? Great question. By the way, uh, David Ortiz allegedly failed a steroid test in 2003 when Major League Baseball gave uh, an anonymous test to its uh, union members, its uh, base play, MLBA, MLBPA uh, union members. Um, allegedly, 
you had both David Ortiz and A-Rod fail, allegedly, because those tests have never been revealed from anonymous sources. That being said, Julius, I've always had suspicions about David Ortiz. Now, in 2002, his last year with the Minnesota Twins, he hit 20 home runs, and then the Twins cut him. Even though second half of the 2002 season, he began to show signs that he was becoming Big Poppy. 2003, with the the Red Sox, I believe he hit 31 home runs. And then he went on to hit almost 500 career home runs over the next 14 years with the Boston Red Sox. He had monster seasons, monster season after monster season, and had one of the greatest seasons in MLB history for a guy in his last season retiring. David Ortiz, like Evander Holyfield in boxing, taking it back to boxing, had some heart issues, and many, many anti-steroid advocates always claim, make the claim that that's a sure sign of an athlete, an athlete who's in the best possible physical condition. If an athlete is suffering from a heart ailment, it is due to an abnormal amount of use of steroids. It happened to Vander Holyfield, and it happened to David Ortiz. Did he use steroids? If you put a gun to my head, Julius, I'd say yes, but I don't have proof other than his heart ailment and the anonymous test that allegedly he failed back in 2003. Would I have voted if voted for Hall of Fame? Well, if you're going to keep Barry Bonds and Rafael Primero and Mark McGuire and Roger Clemens and A-Rod out of the Baseball Hall of Fame, then you got to keep David Ortiz out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds never failed a a, a, a a steroid test. He was, uh, I mean, yes, I am ninety eight percent sure he used a steroids, but he never failed a te- steroid test. He never failed a steroid test, and even if he did use steroids, ladies and gentlemen. It would have occurred around 1999, and by that time, he had already won three MVPs and six gold gloves. Pre-steroids, Barry Bonds one of the greatest baseball players that ever lived. Those three MVPs alone should get him in the Hall of Fame. Forget what he did the rest, because what he did after he, quote-unquote, started using allegedly steroids was Herculean, right? He put up numbers that no one else will ever put up. An advanced in his late thirties to early forties, Barry Bonds was the greatest baseball player to ever live. Past his prime, <laughs> past his past his athletic peak, and a lot of people claim, as I do, that that was due to physical enhancements from anabolic steroids. That being said, he's a Hall of Famer because there was also reports that. 80 to 90% of Major League Baseball at that time was also using steroids. It wasn't like Bonds was cheating and everybody else wasn't. Bonds, like a Jason Giambi, like maybe a David Ortiz, was on that juice. Okay? 
So I agree with you, Julius. I wouldn't have voted David Ortiz in if you're using the same criteria to keep Bonds, Maguire, Sosa, Clemens, etc. out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Great question, Julius, as always. Please, Julius, keep sending me those questions. Now, on to my next question. My man Malcolm on Twitter asked me, Rob, you had Roy on your greatest fighters in the 90s list. Does Roy Jones Jr. beat Gerald McClellan? This was supposed to have been the super fight of the 90s, but that never happened because of what happened against Nigel Benn. What happened against Nigel Benn, man, I'm still hurting to what happened to McClellan due to the Nigel Benn fight. I mean, that the uh, Roy Jones versus McClendon was going to happen. That was all but a done deal. All we had to do was to get uh, Bob Arum and Don King to agree to make that fight happen. And at that point in time, Roy was about to leave. No matter if, yeah, Roy, I think Roy might have left Bob Arum by, by that point. So Roy was in, essentially a free agent, and Roy would have dictated exactly what he wanted to do and who he wanted to fight. No, Bob Arum, no. I don't believe Bob Arum was Roy's promoter anymore. So Roy would have would have been a would have been a hard bargain, but Roy wanted to fight Gerald. Gerald wanted to fight Roy. These two respected the hell out of each other. But there but there was a ingredient missing from Gerald McClellan in the Ben fight that cost him dearly and also a change of strategy. When McClellan first came up, trained by Emmanuel Stewart, he did everything off a dynamite left jab. After his two destructive knockouts of Julian Jackson, McClellan fired Emmanuel Stewart. When he fought Nigel Benn, Emmanuel Stewart was not in his corner. He had fired Emmanuel Stewart. If he would have beaten Benn that night, and also looking to fight against Benn, no longer was Gerald McClellan fighting off a jab. In the first round, he almost knocked out Nigel Benn because he came firing out like a slugger, like he was uh, Mike Tyson post Kevin Rooney, like he was uh, James Kirkland throughout his entire career. McClellan was no longer that boxer who would knock you out behind a potent left jab, the, the cronk boxing style. He became more of a seek-and-destroy fighter. We know what happened with him in the McClellan fight, and he's been paralyzed ever since. He's been paralyzed now for almost, from the neck down for almost 30 years. It's been 27 years since that fight happened. Kudos to Roy Jones. Roy Jones has donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Nigel Ben. I mean, not Nigel Ben, to Gerald McClellan to help take care of Gerald McClellan. That's how much he respected Gerald McClellan. Let's say McClellan gets past Ben. If McClellan doesn't get back with Emmanuel Stewart and there was bad blood between both him and Emmanuel due to the firing, so I don't see that happening. I don't see McClellan beating Roy unless he catches Roy. Roy was the most naturally gifted boxer I ever saw in my life, but what people fail to realize, Malcolm, you notice as well as I know, Roy Jones had one of the greatest IQs in the history of boxing. Roy Jones knew that when he fought somebody that that could possibly beat him if he did if if he didn't box, if he stood in front of him, he'd box 
and go behind his very underrated left jab and use his superior speed like he did against Bernard Hopkins and James Toney. I would have seen Roy Jones win a comfortable 12-round decision by moving. McClellan is going to throw wild shots. Roy's going to move with, with his superior foot speed and box at a safe distance. McClellan will get exhausted late in the fight. And Roy would tie him up if they get inside. We saw what happened when McClellan was exhausted against Nigel Ben. Roy would have boxed comfortably and won a 12-round decision. McClellan might win three, four rounds. But Roy, when he was on the stick like he did against Bernard Hopkins and James Toney, was very hard to hit. Very hard to hit because of the superior foot speed and hand speed. So... The 1995 version of Roy Jones Jr. is the most unbeatable version of a fighter I've seen in my 46 years of watching boxing. So that's the answer to that question. Also, Malcolm made an observation that I did, and I want to touch up on this as far as Shakur Stevenson goes. And let me let me look at let me find that. Let me see. Where's my, where, where, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Big man. Okay. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. Recently, Shakur Stevenson and Jared Big Baby Anderson were filmed sparring. And Jared Anderson, six foot five heavyweight. Shakur Stevenson, a six foot, I mean, five foot eight junior lightweight, junior lightweight. Jared Anderson outweighs Shakur by 100 pounds. What I observed and what Malcolm observed, I want to mention this. Shakur was making Jared miss, and he was landing combinations while coming in and out. And why I think this would help both fighters, and, and, and Malcolm agreed, and I want to bring this up to the audience, the listeners. It benefits both fighters to spar against each other. It benefits Shakur because if you can make a guy nine inches taller than you and 100 pounds heavier than you miss like Shakur was making Jared miss in that sparring session, what's what's a, a guy like a Vasily Lomachenko or a Tank Davis going to do when he, they try to hit Shakur? Shakur already is the best defensive fighter on the planet, bar none, right now. If he fought those guys after sparring with a Jared Anderson and his defense is even better, how is he going to lose? And as far as Jared Anderson goes, if he's able to land on a Shakur Stevenson against a guy 100 pounds lighter and much quicker, that would help him in his fights against superior heavyweights once he stops fighting the, the bum of the month club. Because if he's able to keep up with a Shakur Stevenson, he no doubt would it would benefit him against an Alexander Usyk, an Anthony Joshua, or a Deontay Wilder. So it benefits both fighters, and I'm glad Malcolm pointed that out on Twitter. Now... On to my next question. Um, let me see. Let me see. I got a bunch of questions here. I want to make sure I don't miss anybody. All right. Here we go. Okay. Here we 
go. All right, Luigi, my uh, longtime listener. Luigi, what's up, big man? Great boxing mind on Twitter. Follow him, Luigi Pelosi. Uh, Trina, Trina Crea, 13 on Twitter. Luigi writes, I enjoy, I enjoy your podcast on Fight Game. Don't you think that Ryan Garcia stands a little too tall when throwing punches? I feel like his chin is overexposed and someone like Tank will decapitate him. That's my take anyway. Luigi, I agree with you a thousand percent. Ryan Garcia is a very gifted fighter. There's no doubt he's got extreme punching power, especially in the left hand. Left hand. He's got nice hand speed. I believe Ryan Garcia fights the way he fights uh, Luigi because he idolized growing up Oscar De La Hoya. Oscar De La Hoya is his mentor, and he has been trying to be the next Oscar De La Hoya. De La Hoya had this tendency to stand too tall while throwing punches. But De La Hoya was a much better defensive fighter than Garcia. Garcia is not a great defensive fighter. And we both know, Luigi, that Tank doesn't throw punches in bunches. Tank is very methodical in throwing his punches. And he will wait and wait and wait until he catches you. Tank being a softball, that left cross will be the key. Or the right hook also because Garcia has a tendency when he throws the jab not to bring the arm back while he's back quick enough. And I can see Tank landing a picture-perfect right hook to put Garcia to sleep. We saw what happened when uh, Luke Campbell dropped Garcia with a right cross. What happens if it's a right hook by the ultra-talented Tank Davis, whose punching power is as lethal, if not more, than Ryan Garcia? So I agree with you a thousand percent, Luigi. Tank will decapitate him because of that serious flaw that Garcia has. And Garcia's new trainer, Joe Goosen, does not take into account defense. He is an offensive trainer, period. End of story. He doesn't focus on defense. Saw what he did with Diego Corrales and Gabriel Ruelas. Those guys stopped using any type of defense once Goosen was their trainers. Was was their trainer. They relied heavily on offense, and is why Ruelas got decapitated by Azuma Nelson and Arturo Gatti. And it's why Corrales fought life and death, a life and death war with Castillo, lost the second fight and lost to Diego Corrales and then to uh, Clotty before dying in the tragic motorcycle accident that happened exactly two years to the day of his incredible first fight with Jose Luis Castillo. All right. On to other questions. Let me see what we have here. Okay, long-time listener of all my platforms, Rafael Toro asks, who are your top 10 Latin fighters of all time? Okay, I'm going to go off the top of my head with this. I'm going to list 10, and you guys decide where you want to put these 10. I'm just going to go off the top of my head, top 10. All right, I'm going to go uh, Salvador Sanchez, would be my number three. My number one and my number two, Roberto Duran, Alexis Arguello, Salvador Sanchez, number three. No, Carlos Monzon, number three. Salvador Sanchez, number four. 
Okay, I've got uh, Trinidad and Gomez, five and six. Uh, Canelo, seven. Let me get some Cuban fighters in there. Kid Gavilon, eight. Kid Chocolate, nine. Panama, Al Brown, ten. So there you go, my top ten Latin fighters of all time. You can make an argument for Chocolatito. If you want to say Chocolatito's top 10, I'm not going to argue with you. If you want to say Julio Cesar Chavez's top 10, I'm not going to argue with you. It, it's all subjective. That's my opinion. Once again, Rafael, thank you, and keep asking those great questions. All right. Now, do I have any further questions? Oh, I do have questions on the email. Hold on. Let me go to my email. Okay. Eddie which is nice guy Eddie 01 on Twitter asked me is there a chance of let me see he is there a chance of Ryan Garcia and Tank Davis happening this year I don't think so I don't think so I don't think that fight will happen this year I don't think this fight will happen next year I I just don't think I know the fighters want I want it I know Ryan really wants to fight no Tank really wants to fight I'm not sure if Floyd Mayweather and Oscar De La Hoya want to make the fight. I'm being honest with you. I don't think either one wants. Remember, Floyd's biggest fighter and biggest moneymaker is Tank Davis. Oscar's biggest moneymaker and biggest fighter is Ryan Garcia. I think their egos are getting away. And also, they have an habitual hate for each other. You might need a mediator to step in to make this fight. So I don't see that fight happening anytime soon. Okay, but plus, I think both guys would want to fight Haney before they fight each other. My own gut feeling. Now, on to Eddie's next question. And and Eddie asks, what's up with Demetrius Andrade? Is he really being ducked because he's that good, or is he just not worth wasting your time on? Demetrius Andrade had a lot, a lot of potential, potential gifted ability it's been wasted due to Eddie Hearn's mismanagement of his career and I'll be honest with you Triple G and Canelo refused to fight him and they used the excuse that he's boring and a lot of fans see Andrade as boring I don't agree Andrade is the perfect style to make a great fight with a Triple G or Canelo because they would force him to fight at his best level. Demetrius Andrade is a tremendous boxer. He's the type of boxer that would give those guys fits. I am very disappointed, A, at both Triple G and Canelo not fighting Andrade, and B, for the dumbass boxing media not to call these guys out on it. They've never been put to... Both guys, Triple G and Canelo, flat out said, I'm not fighting him. Why? And they and they they are protected by the media, A, and B, fight fans do not care for Andrade because of his style. Ladies and gentlemen, I said this over and over again. Boxing is the sport of hit, not get hit, and Andrade does that as well as anybody. Andrade has been the most ducked fighter of the last five years. I'm tired of seeing it. And unfortunately, when he finally does fight one of those guys, well, then again, they'll be long in the tooth. And I don't... Canelo and Triple G never fighting Andrade. Andrade, for all intents and purposes, is never getting a big fight with those guys. And now he's 
Now, now he has to settle for fights against uh, young lions that could actually beat him for much less money. Andrade never got the money he should have gotten in his career. Thank you again, Eddie. Keep sending me those questions. All right. My final question will be from a longtime listener, LL School K. And his question is, I got a question for you. What is the heavyweight division missing? Whatever happened to that mean heavyweight that we once had? I would like to hear your take on it, but in my opinion, we're missing that George Foreman, Jack Dempsey, hold no prisoners type heavyweight. Why are heavyweights so passive today? Tyson Fury showed us a little of that no mercy type heavyweight when he fought Wilder. So what I want to know is what happened to it and do you think the big guys are going soft? Wilder has that in him. Wilder is like that wild card. He's got that right hand of that 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 God gave him. All right, but he's never been a real slugger. Wilder stands up straight and he looks to land that decapitating right hand. And if you notice, you see a trend in boxing where guys like a Javante Davis now and Deontay Wilder are looking for that one shot. They're they're willing to give up four, five, six rounds like uh Wilder did against um. Luis Ortiz in their second fight, like Davis did against Barrios and uh, uh, Raleigh the Rapist Romero and Leo Santa Cruz. As far as a fighter like a Jack Dempsey, George Foreman, you could throw Mike Tyson to that mix. I would love to see a fighter like that. We will see. Hopefully one day we'll, because a fighter like that will reinvigorate the heavyweight division. But you got stylists now at heavyweight. Alexander Usyk and Tyson Fury are stylistic boxers. All right? They, they uh, want to hit and not get hit. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't see anything wrong with that. Jared Big Baby Anderson has all the tools to be a possible great fighter in the very near future. And LL, as far as Today's heavyweights, you could make a claim that there are four heavyweights active today that are surefire first ballot Hall of Famers, and that's Fury. Fury's getting in first ballot, whether he stays retired or not. And I don't believe he's retired. I believe he's just waiting to see what happens between Usyk and Joshua, and I think he will fight the winner of that fight. My gun to my head. Deontay Wilder's getting in the Hall of Fame. I know he's got his detractors out there, but the record speaks for itself. Deontay Wilder is getting in the Hall of Fame, okay? Anthony Joshua is getting in the Hall of Fame despite his detractors. So there you go. Four heavyweights, Fury, Usyk, Joshua, and Wilder getting in, just like in the 90s where you had Hall of Famers, Evander Holyfield, Riddick Bowe, Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, you had four, and George Foreman, you had five heavyweights fight throughout the 90s that got into the Boxing Hall of Fame. And then you go back to the 70s with Larry Holmes, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Ken Norton, all those five fighters, all those fighters got into the Hall of Fame. So, yeah, um, even though you don't have that whirlwind, you still have excellent fighters fighting in heavyweight division and excellent up-and-coming fighters like a Jared Big Baby Anderson. So don't count out the heavyweights, LL. Now, on to the final segment of the podcast. We will go to my 30th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, and that is the Korean legend Jung Koo Chang. Let me pull up the article real quick as I was not ready. I apologize to my uh, listeners out there. 
Here we go. I've got the article, and I will begin. This is my 30th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. As an adolescent in the 1980s watching boxing while growing up in the South Bronx, I was unable to watch fighters from Asia and Africa. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not like today where you could get a link on the Internet. There was no Internet back in the 1980s. Uh, you were a slave to the, to the magazines, and I will continue. Technology was barely at the VCR level. As I mentioned previously, I had to rely on the writings of legendary Japanese boxing scribe Joe Koizumi through his boxing coverage of Asia in the monthly Ring magazine. Thanks to Joe, I was able to follow the mercurial career of both the greatest fighter born in Korea and the 30th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, Jung Koo Chang. In 1980, at the tender age of 17, Chang turned pro without any amateur boxing experience. In less than two years, the Korean Hawk, with his swarming and aggressive style, won his first 18 fights. Two of these wins included a third-round knockout of former world junior flyweight champion Alfonso Lopez and a hard-fought decision over another former junior flyweight champion, Amado Ursua. This would culminate in Chang earning a shot at the WBC Junior Flyweight Champion, the great and future Hall of Famer, the Panamanian stylist Eladio Zapata, on September 18, 1982. In front of his South Korean fans in Jeonju, Jeonju Chang applied tremendous pressure throughout the entire 15 rounds versus Zapata. Despite being the aggressor and, di- and dictating the entire fight, Chang lost a questionable decision. Not to be discouraged, Chang went back to the drawing board. Two wins and six months later, he obtained a rematch with Zapata, which once again was held in South Korea. On March 26, 1983, in front of a rabid uh, South Korean crowd, Chang battered Zapata for three rounds until referee Rudy Ortega mercifully called a halt to the fight. At the tender age of 20, Chang had become the WBC junior flyweight champion after boxing for just two and a half years. He would then go on a never-before-seen run by both a Korean and a 108-pound fighter. In the next five and a half years, Chang would successfully defend his world title 15 times, a den record for the 108-pound division. Unlike today's WBC title holders, Chang consistently defended his crown against the top WBC contenders. He engaged a future 108-pound world champion, Herman Torres, in an exciting trilogy of title fights, all won by by Chang. He also twice stopped another future world champion in Hideyuki Ohashi. There was another impressive title defense by the Korean Hawk as he beat future world champion Salt Chinalata via 12-round decision while fighting fighting the last six rounds with a massive cut on his forehead. Finally, in the fall of 1988, Chang retired as WBC Junior Flyweight Champion. It would be a short-lived retirement for the then 25-year-old Korean legend. Just a year after retiring, Chang was forced to make a ring comeback due to severe financial difficulty. Rumors were that he was fleeced of his fortune by his wife. After a decision went off over journeyman Armando Velasquez, Chang signed to fight Humberto Chiquita Gonzalez on December 9, 1989 in Dagu, South Korea. Chang was only 26 at the time and his rabid Korean faithful expected a return to glory. 
It was the battle of the greatest junior flyweight of the 80s against a fighter who would go on to become the greatest junior flyweight of the 90s, the future Hall of Fame hamer Chiquita Gonzalez. Chang, to the shock of his hometown fans, took a one-sided beating as the undefeated Chiquita won a lopsided 12-round decision. Unable to retire because of his financial woes, Chang, despite noticeably being past his prime, continued fighting. After a win against journeyman Rick Soadora, Chang moved up to 112, fight, 112 pounds to fight the WBC champion Chitalata on November 24, 1990. By this point in time, I had finally been able to get three VCR tapes consisting of eight of Chang's title fights when he dominated the 108-pound division. One of them included his gutty 12-round decision over Chitalata in their first fight. In the rematch, it was more of the same as the 27-year-old Chang looked to be the more effective fighter in terms of dictating the fight. Unfortunately, the judges didn't see it the same way. The champion from Thailand escaped with a narrow 12-round majority decision. Disputed, the disputed decision would earn Chang a second shot at the WBC 112-pound uh, title six months later against the man who dethroned de Chitalata, Mung Chai Kitakazam. In one of the greatest fights in the history of the 112-pound division, Chang knocked the WBC title holder from Thailand down three times going into the 12th and final round. Unfortunately, Chang was a 28-year-old fighter who had shot his load. A desperate Kitakazam caught Chang in the 12th round and had him badly hurt when referee Tony Perez stopped the fight with only 24 seconds left in the fight. A dejected Chang finally retired for good with a record of 38 wins, 4 losses, and 17 knockouts. Three of those losses came in world title fights after his initial retirement. Jung Koo Chang was an incredible world winner of a fighter. He was a smaller version of Aaron Pryor, which made his nickname the Korean Hawk apropos. He dominated the 108-pound division like no fighter ever had before him. He fought every viable WBC contender during his five-and-a-half-year reign as champion. Even past his prime, Chang twice came, when, came within an eyelash of becoming a two-division champion. A once-in-a-lifetime fighter, it is easy to see why he's the 30th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, it's been my pleasure to do this show for all the great boxing fans out there. Love the feedback I'm getting on Twitter. Uh, you want to continue to uh, reach out to me on Twitter. First of all, for any questions, hashtag AskRobSilver. If you want to talk to me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is RobertSilver5768. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, be blessed and be a blessing.